This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Amanda Delheimer. So, I don't know about you, but it feels to me like we're living in a time of considerable chaos. And sometimes it feels like the chaos of the current political climate and really the whole outside world forces its way into our personal lives so that we can suddenly see the fault lines in our own relationships. Today, we feature a story about negotiating relationships in a divided world and what it takes to hold ourselves together when everything seems to be falling apart. Recorded live at Found Social Kitchen in Evanston, Illinois, in May 2017, Second Story presents Reshmi Hazra Rastavaki. One of the first times I tried to break up with Aaron was over one of the most important moments in my life. Celtics versus Lakers, Game 7, Championship 2010. Rashid Wallace of Pistons fame, my favorite team being the Michigan girl that I am, was now on the Celtics and I had always been in love. His dedicated loyalty, his sassy edge, his scream, ball don't lie, every time an opponent missed a free throw. <laughs> he was everything I hoped a partner would be. <laughs> Bold, confident, and strangely sexy. But here I was dating a guy I was sure was the opposite. Aaron was a mild-mannered, soft-spoken, green-eyed, Scandinavian guy. Like, so Scandinavian that he doesn't tan, he freckles. We had only been dating a couple of months, and it had taken me until the week before to even admit that I was his girlfriend. I had a history of breaking up with guys at the three-month mark. I had never been able to pinpoint what made me lose interest except that I would get a sick feeling in my stomach thinking about my partner and no longer be able to see them. At the start of the game, we were both rooting for the Celtics, watching them keep a steady lead. I felt on top of the world, my future husband, Rashid Wallace, on the big screen, <laughs> and Aaron by my side, helping me root this, the Celtics to glory. Then came the second half of the game, when Aaron turned into someone I had never seen before. He started rooting for the Lakers, calling them the underdogs. As if the Lakers were ever the underdogs with Kobe at their helm. But at every point for the Lakers, I would turn and look at him. You made this happen. <laughs> Finally, in the last few seconds of the game, as we knew the Celtics' hopes were lost, I looked Aaron Square in the eye and said, I don't even know who you are. I'm not sure I can do this anymore. <laughs> that breakup didn't stick, but it never stopped me from trying. Why did I not want to get serious with Aaron? Aaron was an Indian. While I hadn't grown up in an exclusively Indian community, I had always surrounded myself with diverse friends. I had my dance friends who were all Indian, and out of my three closest friends in high school, two were black women and one was Jewish. When I lived in New York, my friend groups were eclectic and from all different backgrounds. I'd even tried to date some Indian guys. I'd done all the websites like Shadi.com and BengaliMatrimony.com. I could never seem to find an Indian guy who was born and raised in the U.S. and down to date a woman in the arts. By the time Aaron and I started dating, however, my first completely Indian nephew had just been born. 
And I kept wondering, in raising kids, didn't it make more sense? Um, wouldn't it just be easier if I were married to someone that understood all of our traditions and customs? My mother's parents, my grandparents, had lived with us our whole lives. I had watched my grandmother do bujo worship every morning before breakfast and every evening before dinner. My grandfather, stubborn as ever, wrote sh short stories in Bengali and taught us poetry and Rabindranath Thakur's music. How could someone who wasn't Indian, let alone Bengali, ever understand this rich, deep history or even appreciate it? Either way, I never really thought of Aaron as a serious possibility. Even though I had introduced him to my whole extended family, and even though we'd been inching away from the three-month mark with no real breakup in sight yet, the second time I tried to break up with him, we were about four months in, and Aaron and I were having a cocktail on my balcony before meeting my friends at the Brow House for some beer and pretzels. It was, the temperature was fluctuating between sweltering and pleasant. For the last few weeks, I'd felt the coming pressure to find a way out with Aaron, but I had not yet been able to drum up the courage to say anything. As we sat with the ice melting in our glasses, I casually said, so over the summer, maybe we should consider seeing other people. <laughs> You're gonna be in New York, and I would hate if there was someone there that you wanted to hook up with and you felt guilty towards me. I wouldn't want you to resent me for that. <laughs> he was silent for a bit, and I didn't realize I'd been holding my breath until he spoke. But I don't want to do that. Well, why not? That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, because I'm in love with you, and I don't want to do that. I was not used to being someone's girlfriend, let alone a girl that someone said I love you to. Every relationship up until that point in my life had fallen apart before I got there and full-on panic set in, so my less-than-eloquent response was, I've never said that to anyone, and I don't know if I can right now. He assured me that he understood that it was a lot to process, and he wasn't expecting a response. So we headed to the Brow House with no more conversation around it. I don't know if any of you have been to the Brow House, but what they're known for <laughs> is their German fair, which includes Das Boot. Well, we got to Brow House, and I proceeded to order all 67 and a half ounces of Das Boot and chugged. Another thing you should know about me, I've never liked beer. <laughs> it's a means to an end. And believe you me, it was a means to help me ignore the fact that Aaron had said, I love you. And I, in the back of my mind, I'd been thinking about breaking up with him. We had been casual up until this point. If your definition of casual stretches to include hanging out every night of the week and texting so many times that Aaron had to change his cell phone plan three times until he gave up and just got unlimited text messaging. <laughs> casual if you count laughing while being naked together, something that I had thought was an urban legend about relationships. <laughs> I thought being naked was very serious and that laughter never truly belonged in relationships because I had never dated someone I could actually be friends with. So anyway, there we were casual, and there I was, drunk. He worked up the courage to ask me to dance a polka, and I shrugged it off and told him to ask somebody else. I didn't think that I should lead him on if my plan was to end things. At the end of the night, we staggered to the brown line. 
As we climbed the stairs, I caught sight of our waiter, Daniel, who was trying to pretend like he didn't see us. Hey, Daniel! Daniel, remember us? You gave us beers. Thank you. Aaron gently steered me away from Daniel and helped me plop down on a bench. As I stared at him, grateful for his help, even when I didn't ask for it, I blurted out, hey, just so you know, I love you too, but it is not a big deal. And then we let the train carry us away home. So there we were in 2014, and we got married. Yeah. By then, we'd forgotten all about every attempted breakup, we were in the initial stages of wedded bliss. And then it's a hot, sweaty Saturday in the middle of a sweltering August, and Michael Brown is murdered. And Ferguson is burning with the pain and the trauma of the American experience and what it's like to be of color in this country. I found myself unable to get up in the mornings and weeping constantly. I remember how the officer said Michael Brown looked like a demon. And I couldn't help but think, they don't see people of color as human. We're not mere mortals to them, and we never will be. Now, Aaron and I were not naive. We had talked about race and culture from the get-go. We had discussed how his Lutheran upbringing and my Hindu upbringing were different, and how would we handle having children in an environment like that. He knew about the time I went to homecoming with my friend Hammonth because Hammonth had asked another girl, but she didn't want to go with someone who was brown. We had discussed that people look at us funny, and he always spoke up when I was randomly selected on every flight we took. But the Michael Brown case broke something in me. I shut down. I couldn't talk about it without getting angry. I woke up one morning and felt a weight on my chest. It felt like I couldn't breathe and the day was only beginning. Aaron and I were having breakfast and trying to plan our day off together. He made a big meal to celebrate and I tried to chat as if everything were normal. But I had recently watched a video about a white man with two biracial daughters. He had gone to Walmart and then driven home to find the police waiting for him. Apparently, a person at Walmart had seen him with his daughters and thought that they couldn't possibly be family and sent the police to investigate. After pretending to be fine for the first few bites of my egg, I blurted out, you know, if we were to ever have kids, your kids would be targets. They would not be able to hide who they are. They will wear being half Indian on their sleeves. What would you do if you were out with our kids and someone said something or, God forbid, tried to do something to them? I would be heartbroken and I would try my best to defend them. But this response just set me off. But what does that mean? What is the action you would take? I don't know and I can't know until I'm in that situation. Well, I'm worried that you wouldn't do anything, that you wouldn't say anything, and that our kids would have to watch and know that they are different from their dad. And there's nothing that can change that. I'm worried that you will never be able to speak up, not when it counts. We kept fighting over and over about if I was having to explain myself too much to him um, or whether I needed him to do more heavy lifting as 
the white male in our relationship. We both knew he, that he was not a part of the problem, but I needed him to be more a part of the solution. He has always been the man that sits back and lets others speak their mind that makes space for other voices to be heard. But I was dying to hear him shout to the heavens so that I knew that he felt the same pain that I was feeling. And he was trying to make space for me to have my own experience without influencing it. So we were getting nowhere. There we were, sitting side by side on our well-worn sofa. I couldn't bring myself to look at him. I could feel him trying to hold back tears, and I knew if I looked at him that I wouldn't be able to say what I needed to say. I'm having a difficult time with how I'm feeling about everything these days. And I think it might be best if one of us found somewhere else to stay for a while. I know that we're on the same side in my head, but I cannot figure out how to convince myself that that's true. Okay, I understand that. I don't want to force you to change your mind on this, but for what it's worth, I believe those things that we said in front of God, each other, and our family and friends. It won't be easy, but I believe that this love we have, this God-given love we have, can help us navigate this, too. Even though I had been the one to ask for it, I couldn't bring myself to move. I held my breath, wondering if he would move to go, both hoping for it and dreading it. I don't know how long we sat there, wondering who would make the first move. In the middle of fights, I always found myself thinking about all the long-married couples in my family, and particularly my grandparents. Once I asked my grandmother why she put up with my grandfather's, stu grandfather's stubbornness, she laughed at me and said, when you know that this is the person that you're going to go on with, you have to figure out how you can live with them, not try to change them so that they can live with you. And I knew we were in that space, that moment within a fight or right after a fight, when you could choose your partner or you could choose the problem. In the ensuing silence, I had to remind myself, Aaron can only rely on his instincts to guide him through. And if I intended to go on with Aaron, I had to remember who he actually is, which is a pretty great guy. Aaron and I never ended up spending the night apart from each other. Ultimately, while he may be no Rashid Wallace, his persistent faith in us and his willingness to make groundbreaking art with me feels like a pretty good compromise. This story was curated by Erliana McLaurin, directed by Liz Rice, with sound design by Billy Eline. Second story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gillard and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Work Fund, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.